John 13, we will be reading and beginning in verse 18. Let's stand together once more for the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired word. I do not want, or I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it comes, when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do look to you for your blessing on our continued worship of our living God. Father, we celebrate the name of our God, which is exalted above all things. We do magnify your name as we come under your word, whereby you make yourself known. Father, we pray that as the word is preached, as we hear it, that you would grant us understanding, not according to the ability of men, but according to that which your spirit alone can do. Bless us with the working of your spirit in the preaching and in the hearing, the understanding, and then the doing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're picking up in the middle of Jesus' instruction to the twelve disciples in the upper room. We broke off here uh, two weeks ago. Jesus had just finished washing the feet of his friends a task most commonly performed by the lowest servant in the household. Then after taking up his garments, Jesus sat down and said to them, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's at this point that then Jesus introduces the unexpected These blessings are not for all. He just spoken of blessings, blessings if you do them. But then he says these blessings are not for all. And indeed, there's one in their midst who is not of the same nature, one for whom there is no blessing to come. Unknown to this band of brothers, one has walked with them 
but he is not of them. For he will go out from them because he was not of them. His heart is filled with worldliness, self-seeking, and greed. We are familiar with his name, Judas. It's not a name that uh, uh, I would expect someone to give to a son because of the notoriety and the shame and all that's associated with this name of Judas, much like Jezebel from the old book. Judas, the name associated with betrayal, deceit, and treachery. Judas' act of giving Jesus to those who hated him is unique in the course of human history. There's one time when Jesus was betrayed into the hand of his enemies, and one man who did that, and that is Judas. It makes him unique in the course of history. However, the sin of betrayal is not unique to Judas. In past generations of the church, and in our day as well, there are false sons within the visible church. We sing one of our hymns about false sons within the pale, that is, within the umbrella of the church. The church has long been a mixed multitude, sheep and goats, Jesus describes it, those in the light and those who yet dwell in the darkness. It would be easy for each one of us to cast our eyes around, wondering who among us might be a false son, who, who could be a goat. I hope that as you and I look at this passage with me this morning, that we will learn to do as the twelve did that night. As they heard Jesus' pronouncement, their question, each one was, Lord, is it I? That should be our response. I'm going to use three main headings. Jesus' sorrowful prophecy. And we'll look at three relationships. We'll look at relationships that Jesus has in general. And we're going to look at three specific relationships. And then finally, three lessons for us uh, from this text. We begin then with Jesus' sorrowful prophecy, verses 18 and 19. The twelve are all present because Jesus has chosen them to be his disciples. According to the will of the Father, he named them after spending a whole night in prayer with the Father. We find that recorded in Luke 6, 12 and following. In verse 17, Jesus speaks of blessedness, but then he proceeds to announce that this blessedness does not extend to all. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. One is chosen, but he's not blessed because they're all chosen. Judas was chosen. When the twelve were chosen in name, he was chosen, but he's not blessed. It's interesting how Jesus is speaking in the plural. This passage is filled with y'all. Most of the yous in this have all been this plural second person y'all. But now he speaks in the singular of he. Jesus' meaning is that this has happened. He said that this has happened in order that the scripture may be fulfilled. Um, The Greek uh, can be very technical and very precise, and that's very helpful. And this is one of those occasions. And there are some commentators that run amok. Um, but what is clear is the, the particular word that is used here uh, is very uh, important to understand it in its context so we would have the right understanding of what Jesus is saying. Judas was not excluded from blessing just so that the prophecy of David would be fulfilled. For Jesus quotes from Psalm 41 verse 9 here. It's not just to tick a box, the prophecy fulfilled. For when God foretells things, God foreknows and foreordains. But that doesn't mean that Judas was 
a helpless uh, robot, someone uh, like a puppet that just went along and did as he was told. It is true that whatsoever comes to pass has been decreed by God, but God decrees no violence to the will of man. Judas had a role to play that night, and indeed throughout the time of Jesus' ministry, he chose that role of his own sin-bound will. We talk about free will. Our will is free insofar as it is set free. And Judas's will has, is bound in sin. He's freely sinning, and he's free but to sin, as any sinner apart from God's grace is. And so Judas acted in harmony with his nature. He wanted greatness in an earthly kingdom. Commentators agree that the, the debate about who would be greatest that they were having just before Jesus lost their feet, that Judas seems to be the one that's instigated that. And when it became clear that Jesus was not that kind of king, Judas took a different course of action. Luke records that Satan had previously entered Judas so that he went and he conferred with a chief priest and agreed to deliver Jesus to them privately for the price of a slave. You remember that the priests, the religious leaders, they, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they delayed, they put it off, or they were determined to do it because they were fearful of the multitude. They were afraid of the crowd. They were looking for an opportune time, and they were biding their time. And they even said, well, we'll wait till after the feast when the crowds have left Jerusalem, and there's not so many around. But then Judas shows up. He says, I can give it to you in private. What will you give me? And so for the price of a slave, Judas promises to give Jesus up, Satan having put it in his mind to do so. And so Judas has excluded himself from the blessing of Christ, the promise that Christ has given. Judas has chose rather to serve himself than to serve Christ, and in serving Christ, to serve others, as Jesus said, as you have seen me do. By my example, you also serve others. Now, indeed, there is this fulfilling of the prophecy that the Holy Spirit moved David to write nearly a thousand years before. But nonetheless, it's coming to pass according to God's promise. So I want to take just a quick look at our Confession of Faith, chapter 5, which is of God's providence. And particularly, chapter four, paragraph 4 uh, draws together what the Scripture teaches and that we even see playing out here. Listen uh, to the wisdom of the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall. When Adam sinned, it extends itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing them in a manifold dispensation to his, that is God's, to his holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. There's a mystery in God's providence. We can say many things about it. There's things that we can say aren't true about it, but there's ultimately a mystery. Judas sinned of his own free will. It was God's decree that he would, but Judas did so of his own will. God's not the author of it, nor the approver of it. And indeed, it is very clear from the text that Judas' act 
is much disapproved. It is a most heinous and vile sin to portray the king of glory into the hands of wicked men. Later on, we will come to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when the temple guards arrive with Judas in the dark of night to arrest Jesus. It's dark. There's no street lights. They come, limited visibility. But Judas says, I'll identify him with a kiss, the betrayer's kiss. And when those men come, Jesus remind them that they had every opportunity because he taught daily in the temple, but they neglected to arrest him in that occasion. And Jesus will make the same statement there as he does here, but that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Again, the leaders were in fear of the multitude. They delayed, looking for an opportune time where the crowds are not present. Judas promised that, and so they went. Evil men acting according to their sinful nature. Remember, we've heard how they've conspired to destroy Jesus. They have become more and more resolved with each passing day. This is a sober prophecy. My friend, he who eats my bread, who eats bread with me, has lifted up his heel against me. You notice from the text we read that Jesus identified by dipping the morsel of bread, handing it to Judas, and Judas then eats it. Judas has struck a deal, and the silver jingles in his pocket. Why does Jesus tell this sober prophecy at this time? Well, verse 19 explains that. John records that Jesus said, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus has brought this prophecy from David's psalm to their attention. He's told them that he knows it's going to happen. He wants them to be prepared for it. He says, I tell you before it comes to pass, so that when it does come to pass, you will believe that I am he. Here we see plainly what type of Savior Jesus is. His concern is for his disciples. He's concerned for them. As a good shepherd, his heart, his burden for them. He knows that when they're in the garden, they will have been praying. Remember that there will be the, the three who went off with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They've fallen asleep multiple times. And then suddenly in the dark of the night, a crowd comes, Judas at the front. He kisses Jesus, and they arrest him. They take him away. Jesus is mindful that all this, when it happens, it would be very inclined to shake these men to the very core of their being. What is happening? What is this that is unfolding before us? What is this evil plot? Did Jesus not see this coming? Or has something happened that he wasn't prepared for? No, Jesus tells them in advance so they'd be prepared for it because he would have them continue to believe that I am he. And indeed, it's the fulfillment of the prophecy. The very things that are unfolding are according to the will of the Father. He wants them to understand that. Jesus is dealing with these men, who might say like a, a mother does with her children that she loves, explaining why she's taking a certain course of action. So, he says, that when it comes to pass, you may, the translation might be best rendered, you may keep on believing in me. I won't give you the technical language of the Greek that's used here, but that's the, the nature of it, that you may keep on believing that I am he. Jesus has a confidence that they have faith in him. They believe he's the Messiah. That's been the confession of Peter. I'm speaking on the behalf of them. And he wants them to keep on. He does not want that event in the garden when it happens to, to rattle them, to shake them, though they will be rattled and shaken to be sure. 
Look with me back to John chapter 6 and verse 67. This is a long chapter of the Bread of Heaven discourse. In verse 67, we find Jesus saying, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's speaking on the behalf. Peter, the spokesman. He says, we believe this. This is our conviction. This is what we're persuaded of. We've come to know it. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. So even way back then, Jesus made this known. He spoke, John says, of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve, chosen to be one of the twelve, and yet one who chose to walk away, one to reject, one to refuse the message. These men are about to step onto a path that we use the languages of him that we sing They're stepping onto a path filled with many dangers, toils, and snares. They know not what is about to come upon them. But Jesus prepares them beforehand. You see the kindness, the love, the tenderness of the Good Shepherd for His sheep, the Master for His disciples. How great is His love for them. It's also clear that Jesus took no delight in the words that He spoke. When He spoke this truth, this was an evening filled with tension and emotion for the God-man as well as for his men. We're told that though he was a son of God, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He suffered then telling these men, this, as we will soon see, that he was troubled in his spirit. Before we go on, just consider this. Again, let's remember the context. What Jesus is telling them, telling them about what Judas is going to do, some events that are going to take place that night. And yet Jesus prepares them for that because he's concerned that they not waver in their faith. My friends, hallelujah, what a Savior. Is not God merciful to us, even in our own circumstances? There's sometimes that things uh, overtake us that are unexpected, and yet he's faithful in it. this also that even as Jesus speaks a word to encourage the eleven in their faith these are words of warning to Judas he heard these words even as he slayed on his side beside Jesus hearing the prophecy concerning what he was determined to do there was yet time for him to repent it's not a done deal yet Judas could have turned Away to Christ. He could have called upon Him. And even so today, for those who hear the preaching of the Word of God week after week and yet go on in their sin, God is merciful and long-suffering. There's yet the occasion, yet the opportunity to turn to Christ. But the promise of our Savior is He who comes to me. I will in no wise cast out. He's still a tender Savior. Merciful and strong to save. Although we want to consider relationships in particular, but moving into that, we're going to consider relationships, Jesus' relationships in general. Jesus had many, many relationships during the years that he walked upon the earth. And I mean, not just the three years of his ministry, but prior to that, Jesus had a family. He had a relationship with his mother, Mary, and the man who was his father, 
on earth. Joseph, his sisters and brothers were told by the scripture. He had relationships with all of these. That's uh, a marvelous thing to wonder to think about what it must have been like to grow up in a household with a sinless son of God. But there was extended family as well. We're told of that uh, on the trip to Jerusalem when he lingered behind and his parents supposed that he was with others in the company, including relatives. There were those who had also gone up from Nazareth who were relatives. Jesus had family relationships, even as we do. We've also learned from the text that Jesus had very dear and precious friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And we have those accounts that give us insight into the the love of Christ, the faithfulness that he has to those whom are his friends. But then, of course, there's the twelve, especially that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. We often see them singled out for particular things. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration with them. Later, they'll be in the garden. He will leave the bulk of them, but these three will be invited to go further as he goes off to pray. And there are also relationships with the people in community after community, some places where he lingered and stayed for a while, Capernaum particularly, that seemed to have been his headquarters there in the region of Galilee, where so many had so many encounters with him. And yet, in all those relationships, there were many who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were also many who believed. We've heard that many times in John's Gospel. And many believed. And many believe. And there's, we've rightly had reason to wonder just what is that belief? Is it saving faith? Or is it, as we noticed, they believe that he was a miracle worker? There's been a host of those who have had a relationship with Jesus. And indeed, many who have been called unto him by the working of the Spirit of the living God. But in verse 20, Jesus again declares his chief relationship, that as to his father. He comes to it at the end of it. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, and he's speaking speaking to all of them, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Once again, we see Jesus setting it clearly before the apostles that he is one with the father. Now, when he talks about those whom he, that would receive them, remember who's he's talking about? These 12 men, what are they called? Apostles. They're named apostles. The very word means sent ones. So Jesus is sending them out. He will send them out. He has already sent them out. They've gone two by two and 12, and then later two by two, a group of 70, preaching the word of God, doing miracles, casting out demons. They have been his sent ones. And he even gave them instructions that when they went out, that someone reject them. And if that was the case, they would take their sandal off, shake off the dust at the edge of the city, and move on to where they would be welcomed. They've already experienced that. These men are ambassadors, and they must understand that when they go forth, some will reject him. And as his ambassadors, they must think that about uh, his betrayal and condemnation and crucifixion that it will not be a cause for them to shrink back from being sent ones. Indeed, his humiliation is proof of his authority, as well as their commission to go to the nations with the good news of the gospel. Their message, like Paul, who will join their ranks some years down the road, will be to preach Christ and him crucified. This is what they will be sent out with, and as they go forth, there will be those who receive them. 
what he says, when they receive you, they're receiving me. And by receiving you and me, they're receiving the Father. For this is the will of the Father that has sent me into the world. This is true for us today. My friends, we are called and sent as witnesses. The Great Commission commissions the church uh, corporately as well as individually to go. As we are going, Jesus says, we're to make disciples. We are being sent by the Father. Each one of us, if we name the name of Christ, we're one with him. We are sent into the world. And there will be those who receive us. And, of course, there will be those who do not receive us. But we are to go with a confidence and a boldness with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that if we're rejected, it's ultimately not us that's being rejected. It's Christ, his message that they're rejecting. And indeed, that when some receive us, let us not pat ourselves on the back and boast in that, but rejoice that they're receiving Christ to ascend to us, even as he sent the Father, sent the Son into the world. God is the one who is at work. This is a relationship that all who believe will have. My friends, if you have faith in Christ, you are in relationship with him and with the Father. He is your Father through Christ the Lord. What a glorious truth. Now, it's no surprising at this point that just prior to announcing his betrayal that Jesus was troubled in spirit, having told them about the coming betrayal, having told them that he's telling this to them for a purpose so that they will not... Uh, that they will continue to believe that he is the one. And then speaking of the relationship that he has with the Father and they have with the Father through him, then we're told when Jesus had said these things, this after he's particularly said these things to them, he was troubled in spirit. Jesus was troubled in spirit. This is that same deep emotion. This is the word that was used when Jesus was troubled in spirit as he stood by the tomb of Lazarus. As he's about to call forth Lazarus from dead into death into life, Jesus, looking at the situation, mindful more than any other of the nature, uh, the state of men's souls, and the effects of the curse and the sin of Adam, all that is in there, he he's troubled. And even now, as he's with the twelve, there's this deep troubling of the spirit. It's a soul agitation because he understands more than any others. There's Judas. One who's chosen to walk with him, who will soon give him the Judas kiss. There's his disciples. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. He knows that they will all forsake him as they arrest him in the night. He even says, you'll let them go. Jesus is troubled in spirit. We can't say what he's troubled most about. The twelve, Judas in particularly, the events that are about to unfold. But Jesus is aware and he's troubled. And then Jesus, on the heels of this, verse 21 again, after he says he's troubled in spirit, the New King James renders the the words of the Greek here most assuredly. Uh, Literally, it's amen, amen. Or as the King James says, truly, truly. And it is, as the King James captured, most assuredly, this is a certain and a true statement that Jesus makes. Here is the word who spoke through the prophets of old, speaking now as a living prophet to those he loves. And his message is dark, but it is true. One of you will betray me. Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
to understand in some part why Jesus would have been troubled in spirit before he says that. He's already alluded to it. The prophecy from Psalm 41, He who eats bread, my bread with me, lifted up his heel against me. And now he declares it. Before the announcement, he's troubled deeply within his spirit. And then he announces the reality with a certain, Most assuredly, I say to you all, one of you will betray me. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet for the things that he foretold took place before his very eyes. Other prophets told things that would come after their lifetime, but Jeremiah was a prophet during the time when Israel was being sieged, Jerusalem was besieged, and great atrocities took place in the city. Jeremiah was there, saw it all. Jeremiah himself was much abused by the people. Those, there were those who were determined to kill him. And he was even a, a Gentile who interceded on behalf of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. He saw hard things in men's hearts. How much more Jesus to speak to the twelve concerning one of them. One of you. Even one of you is going to betray me. This betrayal is like a, a bolt out of the blue. It would have been most stunning for such a word to be proclaimed to the twelve as they were there reclining at the table. He was their master, their good shepherd. He was kind and tender and good. They had a close relationship with him, and such an announcement was beyond their comprehension. Well, let us focus more on these relationships in the upper room. Certainly Jesus has a relationship with each one of the men around the table, but I want to look at three relationships that night. The fact that the disciples had no idea who the betrayal was says much about Jesus' relationship with the twelve. They're clueless. Verse 23, Simon Peter, now there was there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the, his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask whom it was that he spoke of. They don't know. They're clueless. Jesus has not treated the twelve in such a way that when Jesus makes it announcement, we go, oh yeah, I know who it is. They had no idea. And it's quite remarkable how they respond. Mark tells us that they, they begin to be sorrowful. Their grief begin to well up within them. And to say to him, one by one, around the table, one by one, they said, Lord, is it I? Such has been their relationship with Jesus. They don't know who it is. And rightly, wisely, they ask first concerning themselves, Lord, is it I? We see here that the bond among these men was centered on Jesus. They look to him, and that should be no less true today. The center of any true church is Jesus Christ. At our opening of our worship, we were asked the question, why have we come? Well, we like each other, I hope, but that's not why we're here. We are here because of Christ. Christ is the center of who we are. Christ is the center of why we gather. Christ is all in all. It is because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that this particular congregation exists in any faithful church. It is because of Christ. Christ at the center. Our relationship flows out from Him and from Him to us and therefore to one another. He is the head of the church and we are the members of His body. Christ is foremost in all in all. He binds us together. It was true for those men in that room that night. All things flow out of him. Indeed, the worship that we come, 
the preaching, the teaching, the sacraments, they all center on Christ, flow from Christ, and are for his glory and honor and for the good of his people. Our unity is bound up in a common commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would have been true of the men around that table with the exception of one. <coughs> for you see, Jesus died to purchase us from sin and bring us to the Father. He is at the center. So Jesus' announcement that one of their number would betray him would have been very hard for those men to process. No doubt after those words were uttered, their minds were running with a thousand thoughts. You know how we can do that. We hear something alarming, something unexpected, and our mind runs and runs in a thousand directions, the what if and who what and so forth. What happened at that point gives us a glimpse into these men and their unique relationship with Jesus. We're only going to consider two of those. And then we're going to consider one other relationship that was in that room that night. First, we want to consider the relationship between Jesus and John. Remember, a couple weeks back, I took some time to explain to you the scene of the, the table, like a, a, a U around a low table, men reclining on pillows on their left side at the table so they could eat with their right hand. And from the descriptions of the scripture, this passage and others, we know that John is on Jesus' right side, thus he could lean back on Jesus' breast. And Judas was on his left side, the place of honor. Very easy for Jesus then to take and dip the morsel and hand it to him. The other disciples around the table in some order. And it seems likely that Peter was across the way where he could see John, even as we see in the text just now. Judas to the left and John to the right. John tells us that the one whom Jesus loved was leaning on Jesus' bosom, laying on his left side, just leaning back, and he was leaning on Jesus, near to Jesus' heart. My friends, that's the place to be, leaning on Jesus. Though we cannot lean on him physically, we certainly must spiritually lean upon him and be close to him. John refers to himself this way, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're told in, at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 21 that as Peter and John are walking, Jesus is walking away with Peter, having a conversation, restoring him. John lingers. We know that, and we know they're walking because John records it. And Jesus has told Peter about his own death that will come, and Peter says, well, what about this one? John's right there. He says, that's not relevant to you. If I want him to stay until I return, so be it. And thus the rumor went out that John would not die until the Lord came again. But at that point, John identifies himself. He says, I am the one who writes these things, and my witness, my testimony is faithful and true. John identifies himself then, but he also refers to himself in the course of the book, the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And here it is, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. It makes sense. It's very clear to us that John was the youngest of the disciples. Probably but a lad, still in his teen years as we would count them when Jesus called him. The younger brother of James. James, a, a full, mature man. James, a, a little brother. And Jesus rightfully looks out for John. He has special attention to care for him. He's walking the, the roads uh, with these burly men who can, in some sense, handle themselves and you know, deal with dangers, but Jesus looks out for John. He's a good shepherd. John's like 
a precious little lamb. And he watches over him. My friends, we should be encouraged that Jesus deals with us no differently today. Here's this one whom Jesus loves. Verse 24 tells us that Peter is across the way. He's in John's view where he uh, can be seen. And Peter, the, the spokesman, he, he does because he can get John's eye. He does what all of them, you can imagine all of them is like, hey, John, you know, that, but Peter can be seen and he motions to him to ask Jesus. He gestures in some way. Peter never shy, always bold. It's a wonder that Peter just didn't shout it across the table himself. And then John, we're told about leaning back, asked the question. And it is quite likely because there's closeness that nobody heard the question John asked. As you see this unfold, there's a clarity that's missing for what follows as they assume certain things. The question Peter or John asked then, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus answers him. And it would seem that this response may only have been heard by John as well. It is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now Judas would have been with earshot unless Jesus was whispering. But Jesus gives this answer. Before we go on, what can we learn from John? Jesus kept John close to him. But John claimed to stay close to Jesus. That's a lesson for us. To keep our heart close to Christ's heart. That our hearts should be in love with the Savior who has loved us. That we would want to be with Jesus more than any other. It also tells us that John was very comfortable being close to Jesus. You ever had friends that uh, maybe aren't quite so good of friends when they find out that you're a Christian and they want their distance and you start talking about certain things they kind of pull away? But Jesus, John's right there with Jesus. He's comfortable with Jesus and his ministry and his teaching. He's even comfortable to lean on his bosom. Let's see how Jesus invites us all. He would welcome us all to come and abide close to him. And indeed, it's when we abide close to Christ that we bear good fruit. If we are uncomfortable being so close to Jesus, let us ask Jesus to open our eyes to see anything in us that would hinder us from that closeness with Him. Well, secondly, there's another relationship in the room that we want to consider, and that is Jesus and Judas. Judas on Jesus' left side, Bela behind, reclining also on His left side. It must be remarkable how, it is most remarkable how Jesus relates to Judas. His betrayer is right there, right at hand. This man who would seek to hand Jesus over to be destroyed, and yet Jesus is perfectly at peace. You think about it. He's laying on his left side with his back to Judas. There's no fear. No trepidation. And also notice Jesus doesn't, when asked who is, he doesn't stand up and say, Judas is the one. He doesn't call him out. He doesn't make a scene or a show. John recalls, what Jesus said in answer to his question, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. That action was one of great honor that Jesus would dip a morsel as the host and hand it to one of the guests. He was giving a great honor to Judas who was right there. Jesus is gentle with Judas. 
Even though the hour is late, Jesus leaves the door open for Judas to repent. There's still an opportunity for Judas to turn away from the course of action that he's chosen. Jesus notices he exhibits no bitterness towards Judas. We find that challenging, would we not? If we think somebody, if somebody has betrayed us, somebody has treated us ill, it's it's a great struggle, and we need great grace to overcome that and have no bitterness. And yet Jesus shows nothing but goodwill to the one who would betray his trust, one who has walked with him and even plundered the, the common purse of Jesus and his disciples. And it's after that Jesus hands Judas the morsel that Jesus speaks to him. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. See how specific John is? He wants us to be very clear. Who is this individual? It's none other than Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, notice the language. Now after the piece of bread implied entered him, he ate it, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. My friends, let us pray to be Christ-like with those that are around us. We may have adversaries and people who would persecute us. Let us not harbor bitterness, but have compassion and burden for their soul. For as long as they draw breath, there is yet the opportunity and a hope that God might have mercy on them and to save them from their sin and their iniquity. Let us learn this from Christ's relationship with Judas. But there's a third relationship. We've already alluded to it. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him, that is, Judas. What a terrifying relationship. Judas, I'm Satan, entered Judas. This is not the first time. Look back at verse 2 of this same chapter. After supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. John records, this has already taken place. In a time past, the Satan has come and he has put it into Judas's mind to portray Jesus. Judas has already had a relationship with, Judas, with Satan. James Boyce, uh, long a pastor at Tent Press in commentary, says Judas was not just a mistaken individual. He wasn't just misguided. He was a deceiver. Dr. Boyce says, a devil, a hypocrite par excellence. Judas lived with the others and pretended that he was one with them. While deep in his heart, he was rebelling against everything that Jesus taught. There have been those in the church down through the ages who have done the same thing. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that Satan has fiery darts that he likes to hurl. And it would have been quite likely this is what Satan has done to Judas. Hey, you could betray him. You could even get some coin for doing that. A fiery dart from the evil one, for that's how he works. J.C. Ryle tells us how the devil works. First he suggests, and then he commands. Then he knocks on the door and asks to enter. And once you let him in, he takes complete control like a tyrant. What are we to do? How do we escape such a force? Well, James tells us in James 4. He tells us how to avoid and escape if indeed need be. 
James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist him, and he will flee from you. That's the promise of God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then notice what James says, lament and mourn and weep. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You know, after the deed is done, what does Judas do? He goes on, hangs himself. After Peter betrayed Jesus, and Jesus looked to him at the third time when the cock crew, what did Peter do? He lamented and mourned and wept, the scripture says, bitterly. We don't see that in Judas. He gave himself over to the service of Satan. What we learn is that even though Satan had entered Judas, Judas was still responsible for his actions. Hear Jesus' judgment. In Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He doesn't say, Woe to poor old Judas as Satan entered. No. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It would have been good if he never had existed than for him to do what he done, to betray the Son of Glory. Through this exchange, we see that Jesus exercised sovereign control. He has given Judas every opportunity to repent and to flee to Jesus. But once it has become clear that Judas will not, Jesus sends him. What you do, do quickly. Even as the events are unfolding that night, they're unfolding in order that the timing of God will be ordained. Judas needs to go. He needs to find the chief priests. They need to organize their band. Jesus will go to the garden. And then after Jesus has prayed, after he's finished his discourse, after he's gone out, prayed, after all those things, then and only then will Jesus be arrested. Only after Jesus drinks the cup and is the guilty one will he be arrested. And thus, Jesus tells Judas what you do. Do quickly. God's timing is unfolding. When it seems as though Satan is succeeding, let us remember that he is only able to do what God has authorized him to do. That is one of the great truths revealed in these final hours of Jesus' ministry. Time and again, those wicked men were determined to seize Jesus, but they could not. He just walked away from them. He just disappeared in their presence, so to speak. He was not taken because it was not time. He was not to be stoned. He was to be hung on a Roman cross. God sovereignly in control even over the powers of the evil one. This is one of the great points that we learn from the book of Job as well. Well, let's conclude with our third point with some applications. Three lessons for us. What can we learn from the life of Judas? Consider, is it I? That's a question that we should all wrestle with. Is it I? As we look at these three sins in closing, the first lesson, being near Jesus does not change a sinner's heart. Once heard a preacher say from the pulpit, you know, standing in a garage does not make you a car. Mm -hmm. Right? Being near to Jesus does not make you a Christian. It does not convert you. It does not change you. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. He went out preaching of the kingdom to come. Judas went out casting out demons in Jesus' name and healing the sick, all with the authority given to Jesus. Remember Jesus' sober words in Matthew 7. Many will be on that day that will say, Lord, Lord, have we not... Heal the sick, cast out demons, and I will say, depart from you, you workers, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. 
Judas was with Jesus, and yet Judas' heart was unmoved and unchanged. Judas never had the new birth accomplished by the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus announced to Nicodemus as we saw it back in John chapter 3. My friends, this is a sober warning to all, particularly those who are regularly in the worship under the preaching of the Word of God. It's as though you're walking with Christ. You're experiencing Christ. You're hearing Christ. The demonstration of the power of the gospel is displayed week by week. Maybe even members coming to the Lord's table. Therefore, we are to be instructed to examine ourselves, to be sure that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. So Scripture says we must make our calling and election sure. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's no room for presumption or idleness. We must be diligent. And as we share the gospel, let us also remember it's the Holy Spirit alone who can change the sinner's heart. We want to be winsome. We want to speak with clarity. We, we want to understand the message which we carry. But understand, it's God who changes heart. And so let us labor in the gospel with much prayer, waiting on the Lord. And then when God gives the increase, all glory be to God alone. Secondly, we understand that we can never know another's heart. The other apostles, they had no idea that it was Judas. There was no suspicion. John writes these things later. He fills in the gap, tells us things that he came to understand. But they did not know. It was not until after the fact that the truth about this companion of theirs for three years was revealed. This underscores just how difficult a task it is for the session of elders when examining people for membership. I think probably everybody who's come into the membership, I have said to you, you know, we are not saying, if you're admitting to member, we're not saying you're a Christian. We're saying you have a credible profession of faith. We don't come with LEDs on our forehead, a red light if we're not converted, and a green one if we are. It's, it's not that clear. We, we look for a credible profession. Do you understand the gospel? Are you seeking to live by the gospel? That's the best that can be done. And indeed, let us be sure that we have a walk and talk that are in agreement with one another. This is why the church is a mixed multitude. We're known ultimately by... The fruit, but particularly the fruit of perseverance. Those who persevere to the end, the scripture says. This is why I believe it's in the book of Hebrews that it is written, There are those who went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have not gone out from us. But it will be clear that they are not of us. They went out from us. A third lesson, Judas warns all against playing in sin or playing with sin. Sin is the purview of the devil. Sin came by the devil in the garden. Sin was his, what he trafficked in. And Judas did not begin with betrayal, but it was where he ended up because he dabbled with sin. If we make light of sin, we are in great danger. Many of you believers, you know this. You can tell stories of some dabbling with sin and the consequences that fell upon you. When we're thinking thoughts of sinning, we are on a road of peril. We dare not stray even a little. For broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are on it. But narrow is the way that leads to heaven, and few are those who find it. I want to conclude with this last verse, the last phrase, and it was night. This passage that we've considered today has two 
of the darkest statements in Scripture, in my estimation. Verse 27, then Jesus said to him, or no, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Satan entered him. What a terrifying passage. What a terrifying statement. What a dark passage. But then we're told in verse 30, after he went out, it was night. Night for Judas. After all the offers of grace, after Jesus' patience and forbearance and mercy extended to him, Judas walked away from the light of the world to remain in darkness and to be cast into outer darkness. He had made his pact with the devil and would end up with him hanging himself and being cast into the fires of hell forever. There are still those who are doing so today. It was night also, dark in the reality. It was night. But it was night spiritually, the dark night that was to come. The forces of evil were rushing forward to the long-looked-for opportunity to strike the sun, and they thought to gain all for themselves. The religious leaders had sold themselves to the devil as well to do his bidding, for he was their father. Jesus said that. He is your father, for he is a father of lies, and you are liars. And they were bent on serving him. Hit was night. But my friends, that's not where we're in. The good news is unfolding. All this was God's plan foreordained before the foundation of the world, but it was necessary that the Lamb of God should be taken away, be hung on a Roman cross, that there He would receive from God the just condemnation and the wrath of God for our sins, so that our sins would be taken away, our guilt would be satisfied, and that we could become the righteousness of God. You've heard it says that the darkest part of the night is right before the morning. And indeed it was dark. And there was more darkness to come. But there was a morning that was going to come. We celebrate it this morning as we remember the resurrection of Christ. When he was victorious, he only bore a bruise to his heel. But he crushed the serpent's head. Even as the father had foretold in the garden some 4,000 years before. My friends, see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who is victorious. He has won the victory. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do marvel at the way of your dealing with men. Father, it is marvelous to behold, even as we look at these very intimate details that John recounts from the upper room, conversations he was a part of, conversations he heard, words uttered that he alone uh, was able to record as the Spirit moved him along. Father, we thank you for all four Gospels that give us a, a comprehensive picture of what took place that night. Father, we rejoice to know that you sustained the eleven. That as Jesus told them in advance that they would continue in their faith, that they would continue to believe, Lord, you kept them. And Lord, it is our hope that whatever we may face in our day, you keep us. You keep us to the end. Oh, Lord God of salvation, by your blessing, may we persevere to the end. We pray, Lord, that the power of the gospel will continue to bring men and women out of the world to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.